Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. Whoa, I really fucked that one up after 80-something episodes. Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 4, which is headlined by Dustin Poirier and Dan Hooker, which should be a great feather or lightweight fight, um, which has a lot of implications, at least for Dan Hooker, if he ends up pulling off the victory here. Um, very excited for this card. There's a couple other fights I'm really looking forward to, uh, but we'll get into those breakdowns very shortly. Let's quickly go over UFC Vegas 3, which was the last event, and we'll quickly go over my bets for that card. My lock and I play four units at plus 119 for uh, Courtney Casey and Jillian Robertson to go under two and a half. That whiffs. That was my second ever plus money lock of the night play. So shitty that that one missed by two minutes. I knew Jillian Robertson was going to be aggressive from bell to bell. Um, and it was unfortunate that she wasn't able to pull off that submission two minutes earlier because uh, I thought she would be able to get her or at least get herself into some trouble that Courtney Casey would be able to um, capitalize. Man, there was like 15 seconds left before the under would have hit and Courtney Casey went for this on bar and I was just like, oh my God, hit it, hit it. I love Julian Robinson, but I don't care if you get topped, uh, tapped out right now. Um, but uh, Casey obviously was not able to pull it off and then Jillian Robertson gets that rear naked choke with about like 30 seconds left in the round um, or in the fight, I should say. Um, and then our other loss was one unit plus 108 on Lyman Good. Uh, Bilal Mohammed looked great. He went out there and put on a clinic, not a clinic, but put on a really good performance against Lyman Good. Uh, and then we go to our two Dog of the Night plays that actually hit, which allowed us to take a little bit of less of a loss for this event. The first one, 1.5 units on the under 2.5 on Jim Miller versus Roosevelt Roberts. Great uh, hit there. I wish I picked uh, or bet Jim Miller. I did pick him on the podcast last week, if you guys were listening to that. Um, unfortunate way for Roosevelt Roberts to get a, a, a loss here. But uh, Jim Miller's still a fucking savage. If this fight ever finds itself in the jiu-jitsu realm, he's always a problem. So you guys need to you know, give him a little bit more respect, even though he's on the tail end of his career. So that's uh, plus 1.5 units there. And then uh, my biggest underdog play for the card, plus 191 on T-shirt tours, one unit. Uh, and I profited, obviously, plus 1.91 units. Happy to hit that there, man. I, I think that a lot of people are overlooking uh, Tisha in this fight. Brianna looks like a very young, up-and-coming prospect. She looks very, very promising, but Tisha Torres is just a strong little girl, and or woman, I should say, and uh, I knew it wasn't going to be that easy for Brianna to get her down. Um, I said it on the last podcast, and especially in the breakdown, when you have two women that are as short as they are, Brianna is always the shorter one in her fights, so she's able to get her hips a little bit lower and able to, to really drive through with her takedowns and secure those takedowns. But when you have two fighters that are pretty much the same size and you have somebody as strong as Tisha Torres, it, it was going to be way harder for Brianna to get her down and that proved correctly. And then obviously Tisha has a better hand speed, uh, power and strikes. So she was able to to showcase that. All in all, minus 1.59 units on the event. Uh, the skid continues. Uh, the lock of the night play was so fucking close to hitting. Uh, but uh, I think I got I think I got a really good play coming up for this event uh, this weekend. So uh lucky for that uh as i always say before i start the breakdowns if you guys want to get these breakdowns earlier than the podcast actually comes out uh the patreon i always post as soon as i finish recording my breakdown i post it straight to the patreon so my patreon subscribers are able to get it first sometimes it's a week in advance sometimes it's two weeks in advance though we got the ufc 251 event which is the next event coming up july 11th which is still two weeks away so i'm uh i will be dropping a cup uh, each breakdown 
uh, over the next couple of days. So my Patreon members will be able to get that nights and early. So if you guys are interested in getting that and a bunch of other perks, which are going to be in the description below of this YouTube video or this podcast, wherever you guys are listening to it, make sure you guys check that stuff out. But again, it's only five bucks a month. Super cheap. Helps your bro, helps your boy out. Uh, obviously, I'm not doing it. I have a nine to five as well. So it takes a lot of time out of my day to, to dedicate to doing all 12 fights for every single card. But I try to do it because I love to do it. And uh, obviously, to have a little bit of financial compensation behind that as well makes it a little bit more easier to to do and hopefully it's something that i can eventually do a little bit more full-time uh in the coming future so again check out the patreon and that's about it let's get into the freaking breakdowns genu fry versus k hansen we got minus 165 on k plus 145 for Jin, and this is a little bit uh surprising that the odds are uh the way that they are so let's start off with the the current i guess now former uh adam way champion of invicta uh genu fry uh, she her most two recent losses were to Seo Hee Ham over in Road FC, and then uh, a rematch to Ayaka Hamasaki, uh, which was a fight that she had lost uh, earlier in her career in Invicta due to a stoppage cut. But she lost via decision over in Risen uh, to Ayaka Hamasaki. That was a fight where she was doing very well on the feet for that first round or two rounds, I should say. Um, and then in the last round, uh, Hamasaki was able to get her down and really just rode out to opposition for the majority of that. And then just based on pride or risen rules, uh, Hamasaki was able to pull off the victory uh, via decision there because most of her damage and her control and, and her winning the fight happened in the latter half of the round um, or the latter half of the fight, which accounts for more over in Risen. Uh, and then she came back and she defended her Invicta title against Ashley Cummins, which was actually a rematch uh, in a fight that was very closely contested uh, back in the day. This is weird because in, what is it, 13 fights that Jin Fry has had in her career, she's fought the, uh, she's had a rematch with three different opponents. So she's fought six, six of those... 13 times almost half of her fights were against the same people which is crazy but uh uh, Ashley Cummins has a had a really similar style to Kay Hansen, which was trying to go for the takedown and try to ride up on top uh, of Jin Yu Fry. Um, she wasn't able to, to to complete that. It was a very close fight too. I do remember having money on uh, Ashley Cummins because she was a way too big of an underdog for my liking, uh, and I thought I got decent value from her uh, in that fight. However, she did come out on the losing end. Uh, Fry is a very strong and imposing woman. Uh, she's quick with her hands. She's definitely going to have the striking advantage in this fight against Kay. Uh, but the issue is um, another atom weight. You know what I mean? Making her UFC debut going up a weight class because they don't have the atom weight division in the UFC. And I thought, like, before, you know, Jin was. I, I guess anybody who wants to, like, make it to the UFC is willing to make compromises, even if, the, you know, uh, they don't have the division that they fight in. Uh, so it's unfortunate that Jin's going to have to, you know, make her UFC debut at a weight class above against a pretty physically strong woman in Kay Hansen. Um, I don't even know if you can call Kay a, a woman at this point. I think she's still 20 years old, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, she's still 20, which is insane. She'll be 21 in August. So she's not even legal in the States, which is crazy. Uh, but uh, Kay's uh game plan is pretty straightforward every time she fights she even wears it on her chest <laughs> like more often than not she's wearing a 10th planet jiu-jitsu rash guard which just lets you know what what her uh you know what 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 her, what her game plan is pretty much going into it um she makes no bones about it if you watch even like uh if you just skim through her tape uh you'll see that she just wants to get this fight to the ground as soon as possible try to implement her jiu-jitsu and probably get a uh you know a submission of some sort 
I think she'll have a little, like, it's tough to tell here because uh, one, her, her takedowns uh, sometimes seem too desperate. Um, I think Jin might have some success in terms of stuffing them here. But if, you know, I, I'm just not sure what the what the strength advantage really is going to be. Kay Hansen standing at 5'3 uh, with a 63-inch reach. 63 uh, Jin Yu Fry, same height, 65-inch reach. Uh, but it looks like um, Kay is thicker built and uh, Jin is more muscularly built. That, I, that just sounds so wrong coming up, but I'm sure you guys know what I mean just by saying that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if Kay's going to be successful with the takedowns. She could be. Again, it's going to come down to the strength, and I'm not completely sold on Kay either. You know, she she's very... Um, she's very desperate to get those takedowns. She doesn't really even fuck around much on the feet, and I think that's where she'll have the most problems against Jin. If Jin's able to keep this on the feet, I think Kay's going to be a fish out of water, and it's tough for me to to trust, uh, you know, a fighter that just seems so once or like uh, one dimensional. Uh, I think Kay still has a ton of room to grow. Um, again, she's super young. She's had nine fights in uh, in her career. Um, Maybe not against the top flight competition. And then when she did fight anybody that would offer up a little bit of re- resistance in the clinch game or the, or the jiu-jitsu world, she had a little bit of issues. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough for me to figure out uh, which side to go here. So in that case, I'm going to have to go with the dog. You got to go with Jin Fry here. The more tested woman, she's fought a higher level of competition. Um, you know, she's fought and risen as well too, which definitely helps in terms of experience. Uh, Kay is still like uh, again a young up and comer, doesn't have the most amount of experience, and this is by far the toughest test she's going to have to fight. Um, and uh, yeah, man, it's to get plus one forty five on a former atomweight champion, even if she's going up a weight class against a girl that's relatively unproven. And again, even six and three, like her her record is not the greatest either. Uh, level of, of opponent is not the greatest either. Um, and I think Jin can definitely uh, hang on the feet uh, and probably you know stuff takedowns. That's what it's going to come down to. If Jin's able to keep this on the feet, she's going to light up Kay Hansen on the on the feet. So. Uh, I'll go with Jin here. I think I'm going to take her to win by decision. Um, yeah, I can't justify betting Kay Hansen here until she, you know, uh, she has decent, she's shown decent takedowns. But I think a girl of Jin's level and what she's seen should be able to stuff any type of takedown uh, that Kay does manage to attempt. And even if she does land one, I think Jin won't be a complete fish out of water and should be okay in terms of getting back up and defending. So I'll go with Jin here. To win by decision, uh, decent dog play. If you guys want to take the shot at plus one forty-five, uh, but man, I just wouldn't trust K at this uh, at this point in time. And even though her tape looks really good with her, always able to get mo- most of her opponents down and and kind of ride from on top and and you know do what she does. Uh, Jin's a different beast. Uh, you know, I, I'm sold on her. She is 35, so she's up there in age. But I think that uh, she has uh, garnered enough experience, uh, and uh, she should be able to pull off the victory here. But again, I, I feel bad that she, they don't have an atom weight division in the UFC because she would very much benefit from that. So I'll go with Jin here uh, to win this fight by decision. Jordan Griffin versus Yusuf Zalal. We got minus 105 for Jordan Griffin, minus 115 on Zalal. Kind of surprised that uh, the fight is out of pick'em. 
but again, I don't feel strongly for either guy. So let's start off with US, Yusuf Zalal. Um, he's coming off a decision victory over Austin Lingo in his UFC debut at UFC 247, which happened this past February. Uh, and that was a fight that I actually had the under two and a half as uh, I believe it was my main play. I was very impressed with uh, both guys in terms of their finishing abilities. And I thought that one of them would be able to pull it off. Uh, you know, Zalal with the rangier... Uh, more footwork-centric game plan. Austin Lingo was trying to mainly just close the distance and land the bombs. However, he wasn't able to find the chin of Zalal. And uh, Zalal was able to, to, you know, especially in that third round, secure a takedown and then ride out the top position to get the victory there. Uh, but mainly, he's an action fighter. He, you know, again, very good footwork, uh, likes to throw spinning stuff and, and flying stuff. And, and he's a very uh, fun fighter to watch. Um impressed with this cardio too especially training over there in uh, denver at factory uh, factory x muay thai uh with mark montoya and those guys uh team elevation i believe he's put in a couple of, of rounds over there with those guys but i, I like uh what i see especially in that fight against uh, austin lingo we saw that he's able to not just be that crazy wild fighter but was able to actually stick to a bit of a game plan and make sure he pulled out the victory there um this fight against Jordan Griffin, though, I think it's going to be a little bit more wild. I think Griffin has a little bit more of that uh, wild ingredient than Austin Lingo did. You know, Lingo was just plodding forward, just looking for that finishing blow, whereas Jordan Griffin is a little bit more wild himself as well, too. What I'm most excited to see about in this fight uh, is actually the the uh, the grappling exchanges, the scrambles, you know, the the... the I know whenever there's a Jordan Griffin fight, there are crazy scrambles that are uh, more than likely coming into it, um, especially against a guy like Yusuf Zalal. Um, I expect Zalal to have the slight advantage on the feet here, but if it gets into the, the grappling situations, I think it gets a little bit hairy uh, for Zalal, even though he has a couple of submission victories uh, to his name, including a darts choke. Um, he has interesting and and decent darts choke attempts, Um how he wasn't able to actually pull it off against uh, uh, Austin Lingo last time around is, was a little bit mystifying, especially since he had a couple of them, and they seemed very tight. Um, I expect him, if he tries to pull the same thing against Jordan Griffin, Griffin will be able to get out, uh, which would allow Griffin to to secure a more dominant position and possibly you know pull off a victory that way. Um, one line that I am intrigued by here, and I'm not letting the last one scare me as much, but the under two and a half at plus one forty five, plus one forty is is very enticing. Um, again, both guys have finishing ability, but I think the fact that they're both wild, uh, especially Jordan Griffin too, uh, it would lead to more uh, compromised uh, positions and situations for either guy here. Um, uh, it's tough for me to pick a spot. I, I'm kind of leaning Zalal here, uh, again, with having a little bit better striking and a better footwork. Uh, but when we do start seeing those grappling and scrambling situations, um, it's going to get interesting for either guy. Um, yeah, very tough fight to call. I understand why it's uh, closely lined, but I thought it would be a little bit wider, at least for Griffin. But I, uh, it, I'm seeing the the Zalal bets out there, so I'm kind of understanding that now. Um, but uh, I'm not confident enough to take Jordan Griffin, even if he ends up being a little bit more of an underdog as the, the fight gets closer and closer. There might be a little bit of uh, you know potential talk here with Zalal. Um, a lot of people buying into 
you know, he has a little bit of antics. He's a little bit of a showman. So some people might be buying into that. Uh, but you got to you gotta know that, you know, if a guy comes with a grapple-heavy style, uh, it could definitely stifle Zawal. So I'm interested to see if Jordan Griffin is going to, uh, you know, I think he will try to base his game plan around that type of uh, approach where he's going to try to close the distance and initiate the grappling and possibly pull off a submission victory. Uh, but I do like um, this fight to go under two and a half. Um, the plus 140 is very intriguing. It might be a dog play for me. Uh, I'll have to look into a little bit more, but I do like uh, Zalal to possibly win this. Um, I'll say by, you know, having a success on the feet, landing good shots against Jordan Griffin, possibly hurting him, uh, getting a club and sub. Uh, shout out to the club and sub podcast. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think that's kind of how it's going to come about. You know, he's going to make Jordan Griffin whiff on a couple shots, landed some good strikes, uh, hurt Jordan Griffin, and then uh, try to, you know, either lock up of a darts choke or rear naked choke, whatever it is. But hmm. I'm definitely expecting a finish in this fight. So I'm going to go with uh, Yusuf Zalal to win this fight by second round submission. Uh, but uh, yeah, tough fight. Should be a fun fight and possibly sleeper fight of the night potential here too. So um, make sure you guys look out for it. It's going to be one of the earlier fights on the card if I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure if the, the belt order is uh, confirmed yet, but uh, don't miss this. Even if it's earlier in the card, one of the first two fights or so, do not miss it. Uh, should be a fun action-packed fight, but I'm going to be going with Yusuf Salal to win this fight by second round submission. Takashi Sato versus Ramiz Brahimaj. Uh, we got minus 135 on Takashi Sato, plus 115 on Brahimaj. Let's start off with the UFC newcomer Brahimaj, who's making his UFC debut. Um, Why? Well, that's probably redundant as fuck for me to say that, but regardless, uh, he's a Fortis MMA product trading over there with Safe Sayud. Um, He's coming off only one victory, and that's, again, a huge attribution to the fact that UFC is really just scouring for any and all fighters that are willing to fight during this pandemic um they're trying to fill out their cards as much as possible they have a, a quota to meet in terms of events so they're you know stretching out their arms here to to get my man uh ramiz brahimaj into the ufc just to fill out the card in my opinion um fun fighter always brings fireworks um one of the more entertaining fighters to actually watch um you know, he loves his chokes. The main thing that he's trying to look for is always a, a submission or a choke. He has heavy hands as well, too. But I feel like submission game is probably more so up his uh, up his alley. Um, but that submission game comes from, uh, you know, really hurting his opponents on the feet and putting his hands on them. Um, his loss to Justin Patterson really shows, like, what happens if he's not able to actually get that finish. Uh, and, you know, we, we see him start to, uh, or his gas tank start to diminish uh, a lot closer to that uh, midway point of the second round. Um, if he's not able to get his opponents out of there by then, uh, he really faces a lot of trouble and a lot of adversity. And I think that Takashi Sato is kind of durable. Um the play that I like here the most is probably under two and a half. It's roughly around minus 135. Takashi Sato has a lot of power in his hands as well too. So I think that allows the under to be a little bit live, especially when Rumi starts to suck wind a little bit more. Um, it's tough for me to pick a side here because again, Sato got put out in his last fight and then eventually, uh, I believe it was a choke uh, that eventually led to his demise. Yeah, it was a rear naked choke by Bilal, but I believe Bilal actually rocked him before that. Um, 
you know, I think Sato is more technically sound on the feet. Uh, Ramiz may not be as much. Uh, he's more of an entertainer, and I think that's another reason why they brought him into the UFC because they know he can bring a, an entertaining fight, especially against a guy like Takashi Sato is going to be willing to stand there and bang with him as well too. Um, toss-up fight for me, but the best line in my opinion is the under two and a half. Both guys are finishers and can be finished, so there's that. Um, but yeah, I, I like Takashi Sato here. I'm going to take him to win by second round TKO. Uh, but the under two and a half is probably the way to go. Philippe Linz versus Tanner Bozer. We got minus 115 on Tanner Bozer. Minus 105 on Philippe Linz. Let's start off on Philippe Linz, who had just recently fought against Andre Arlovsky and lost a very close unanimous decision. Um, that fight actually took place on May 13th, so just over five or six weeks ago. Um, and... My concerns going into that Philippe Linz fight pretty much came true. Um, and I kind of wish I hit Andre Arlovsky, but I, but I didn't. I actually passed. Um, Philippe Linz, very accurate and precise striker and a very efficient striker. But with that said, um, sometimes he leaves his uh, output um, to be, you know, something to be lacking. Um, he... <laughs> He seems a little bit too calculated on the feet, and that kind of allows the the pace and the, the 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 activity to really pass him by. And I think in a fight against Tanner Bozer here, uh, that's probably not the thing that you want to do. I uh, you know Bozer moves very well for a heavyweight, especially with his physique. Um, and I think that could cause Philippe Lenz problems. Tanner Bozer has great leg kicks. He stopped a couple fights via leg kicks. Philippe Lenz does leave his front leg really out there to be kicked. Um, but he does do a pretty good job in terms of countering his opponents. Tanner Bozer has a great chin, though. You know, he was able to go a full three rounds against um, against Cyril Gan last time around, who's pretty much touted as, like, the next big heavyweight thing. Um you know, he's gone to numerous decisions uh, over his career, especially during his time over at M1 Challenge, where he fought probably some of the best Russian heavyweights that were there. Um, I I think with all the experience that he's accrued, um, and again, just his style in, in general, is a pretty good style to have against a guy like Philippe Lins. Again, um, cardio, movement, and output, and especially those leg kicks. I think they're going to come in very handy here uh, for Tanner Bozer. And uh, I just I I like Philippe Lin's style, but I think it was more. It has to be more so. Um, uh, it, it needs to be more so based around knocking his opponent out because it's hard for him to really win decisions when it comes down to just picking his shots every now and then and not really throwing because that's not a really judge-friendly style to to, to to have. And I don't think he's going to land clean enough on Tanner Bozer to actually put him out. Um, he'd have to drop him pretty much like, you know, once a round to, to for sure secure a judge's decision because I think Tanner will definitely be the more uh, active fighter here. Um yeah, it's it's a little bit surprising to me, and I kind of get it that it's minus one fifteen for Tanner Bozer, so he's the very minimal slight favorite here. Um, but uh, it does surprise me the the love that Philippe Lenz gets just based on his fighting style. So it's hard for me to ever trust somebody like Philippe Lenz with my money. And again, the the Andre Alovsky fight was a a perfect example as to why it's tough to trust Lenz with your money. Um, but but I like Tanner Bozer here. I, I don't mind him at the the price that he's at. I think he's actually worth a good bet here. Um, I'm not sure if I'll 
for sure better myself but i think again he, he's worth a shot here uh just due to the the cardio and and output and activity that he's going to be able to bring and again those leg kicks are going to be a big thing for him here to really um uh stifle the counterattack of philippe lynn's uh, he's going to have to worry, obviously, the first couple leg kicks that he throws out there for what's coming back at him. But outside of that, I think a couple, you know, within the, if he stays on it enough in that first round, the next two two uh, rounds are going to be a little bit easier for him to really implement his game, get his hands going, and makes it a little bit of an easier fight for him. Um, yeah, I, I don't get the big whoop on Philippe Lenz. I, I truly don't. Yeah, he did win the PFL tournament, but when you're beating guys like uh, Kao Alencar, I believe that was one of his like uh, teammates or something like that. Guillotine choked him in less than a minute. Fucking bad. Uh, Alex Nicholson, not the greatest. Uh, Jared Roshaw, pretty much if he can't get you down, he's in pretty much a lot of trouble. Uh, Josh Copeland, you know, looked like dog shit pretty much that whole fight. And it took uh, Philippe Lins, uh four rounds to actually get him out of there. And then obviously lose a decision to Andre Lofsky, who just was, you know, putting out more punches and activities for the judge to see and that's exactly what i believe tanner bozer is going to be able to do so i like tanner bozer here i think he's going to win by a decision um the over two and a half is i think minus 220 so my opinion i would i would rather take the tanner bozer bite than actually bet on uh philippe lens or even the over two and a half here so i'm going to take tanner bozer to win by decision just strictly based off of output and uh, a game plan based around leg kicks Luis Pena versus Kama Worthy. We got minus 270 on Luis Pena, plus 230 on Kama Worthy. Uh, let's start off with Kama Worthy. Worthy. He uh, made an explosive UFC debut when he came in and uh, finished his tra- former training partner uh, and good friend, Devontae Smith. Uh, that's a fight he took on about four or five days' notice. Um, they seem to kind of be playing patty cake a little bit for that first four-ish minutes or so uh and then we see uh you know we hear the crowd boo a little bit and i think it entices a little bit of uh you know energy into both guys they both go into a a bit of a, a firefight real quick and uh Kamal worthy lands a beautifully timed left hook to drop Devontae smith on his butt uh and then follow up with a couple punches um looking back at the rest of Kamal worthy's fights um not super impressed, um, I'll, I'll be honest. Two fights ago, he fought a guy named Joey Munoz. Uh, super short, uh, a little bit on the chubby side. Uh, you know, probably should have been fighting a, a weight class or two below that, to be honest. Uh, and uh, Kamal Worthy goes out there and just wins a decision victory against him. Uh, I don't know if he was just playing it safe for what he was doing, but uh, you know, there weren't many moments in there where he was actually getting the better of Joey Munoz. Uh, Joey Munoz actually landed a couple of takedowns on him as well too, which is very concerning going into this fight against Luis Pena, who's a great wrestler himself. Uh, and then Adam Ward as well, another guy uh, who he was hurting a little bit on the feet, had him hurt uh, a couple of times, especially in that second round, uh, and then uh, even gave up takedowns in that state as well too. You know, I think Kamal Worthy, uh, th- th- this line probably should have been a little bit wider. And I think that uh, the knockout win of Devontae Smith is putting a little bit of a... Uh, 
uh, how do you call it, uh, a bit of a bias on the on the betting line, in my opinion. I think people are, are thinking that Kama is just going to go out there and knock out Luis Pena because Pena, you know, he does have a little bit of striking defense issues because he's still relatively green uh, in that way. Uh, however, um, I just don't think that Kama Worthy is going to be able to really overcome that uh, size difference uh, to land that big of a shot to cause uh, Luis Pena problems. And with that said, I don't even think that Luis Pena is going to allow him to really get those shots off because one he's either going to be too far out using his kicks and managing the distance quite well or he might go the steve garcia jr approach which is his last fight where he just completely grapple fucks his opponent and i think if he chooses to go the grapple fucking way he should be able to get the victory here via submission or even even via tko i don't think kamo really has much off of his back um you know his fight against adrian Velaka, a friend of mine i'd like to call um Velaka is a decent jiu-jitsu guy um i'd say jiu-jitsu is his strength and uh you know pretty much any and every time that Kamalworthy was in that top position or anything like that he didn't want any problems with it uh and i think Luis Pena poses a lot more problems for him than Adrian Velaka did you're talking about a guy that's sixth i just want to confirm i believe it's six three uh that he's standing at 155 yeah six three seventy eight inch reach for 155 pounders just insane compared to a 511 74 inch reach for Kamalworthy um it's it's nuts the amount of confidence that Kamarwadu was able to gain with that Devonte Smith knockout, but I think it really played uh, it really helped him to have his um, you know his his debut his UFC debut against a close friend of his just so he feels a little bit more comfortable in there. You know it seemed like he didn't have many nerves going into that fight. Um, he goes uh, probably just another like sparring session type thing for him, uh, especially again seeing a familiar face and kind of knowing his tendencies already due to the fact that they've been training together for as long as they were. Uh, but now here he is against the legitimate stiff test uh, in Luis Pena. And one last thing about Devonte Smith, uh, super green. You know the guy's been pretty much getting the, and t- most of his victories via knockout. Hasn't really been tested, uh, so I was surprised that he was a minus one thousand favorite going into that fight. Even, you know, considering that Kamalworthy uh, was taking that fight on super short notice. Uh, but Luis Pena, completely different monster. Uh, he had that slip up in the Frivola fight, which was a very close fight. It could have gone either way, so you can't really uh, knock him for that loss there. And then he comes back very, very strong against Steve Garcia and just puts on a grappling clinic. Uh, had Garcia pretty much had his back the entire fight uh surprised he wasn't able to get this weird naked choke finish there however i think against a guy like kamal worthy he might be able to get that finish um worthy has been put out a couple times there's a reason he you know didn't make his ufc debut until he was 33 uh he's just a mediocre fighter um i think he could you know pretty much just hang on the outsides of the lightweight division i don't think he'll ever be really be a top 15 top 10 kind of guy uh and i think that Luis pena is just a super tough matchup for him uh, one interesting thing that we did see from Luis pena last time around was the fact that he had moved down to coconut creek florida to train at an american top team and that was evidence of you know we saw uh king mo Luol in his corner for that fight um king mo Luol also has ties to aka which is the gym that Luis pena came from so there's probably still some ties there uh, for Pena. Um, and I don't think he would completely cut off, uh, you know, Matt for uh, Sorry, he wouldn't cut off AKA strictly due to that Matt for Fola loss. Um, 
I like his style. You know, in a couple of past uh, breakdowns I've had of his, uh, I always called him super green and I always said he was a work in progress. But I think he's slowly making that transition to becoming a legitimate UFC fighter. So he is definitely, you know, making the most of his time down at ATT because that's still the gym that he's training at. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big Luis Pena fan. And I think this fight is kind of tailor-made for him to get a victory. Uh, outside of a one-punch knockout from Kama Worthy, I think Luis Pena will absolutely ragdolls Worthy here and gets the finish, uh, probably via submission, maybe even TKO. Uh, but I think it's going to have to come from his wrestling pedigree, uh, his, his grinding grappling style, uh, and then he's just going to overpower Devontae Smith on the ground. Um, I'd be very surprised to see him hang on the feet for longer than a half a round a year. If he does, big mistake on his end. Um he, he can hang there, but he's making the fight a lot closer if he keeps it up in the stand-on realm. So uh, I expect him to fully utilize his grappling here, his his wrestling, get this fight to a much safer spot, uh, and then you know pretty much overwhelm Kamal Worthy on the ground there and get the victory via TKO or submission. I'm going to call it second round. Um, yeah, I, I like Luis Pinier. Possible do- uh, lock of the night play as well. Minus 265, minus 270. I don't mind paying that juice for a fighter uh, of, you know, Luis Pena's caliber. And especially in this matchup against a guy like Kama Worthy, who's really only advantage. Uh, one thing I will give Kama Worthy, decent leg kicks. Just doesn't throw them enough. Maybe he approaches the game plan differently here and tries to attack the legs of uh, Pena earlier. But with leg kicks comes the opportunity for takedowns as well too. So I can see Pena capitalizing off of that as well as, as well. So it's really tough for me to see Kama Worthy coming out with the victory here, which is why Luis Pena more than likely will be my lock of the night play for this uh, for this card. Um, yeah, so I'm taking Luis Pena second round TKO or sub. Sean Woodson versus Julian Arosa. Julian Rosa stepping in on super short notice and the odds actually just dropped for this fight so I'm glad that it you know the timing worked out perfectly in terms of me dusting up on Julian Rosa to do this breakdown for you guys but we got minus 510 for Sean Woodson and plus 340 for Julian Rosa so let's start off with Sean Woodson 7-0 and uh, still a prospect uh, he's 28 years old so he's still you know reaching his prime um Trains with James Cross and those guys down in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, and has one fight under his belt where he won a unanimous decision victory over Kyle Bokniak in a fight where he was able to stifle the the shorter fighter, uh, keep him on the outside, and land beautiful knees up the middle. Um, but man, the guy's such a interesting fighter. Um, standing six three, and I think he's a one forty five or yeah, sorry, obviously he's a one forty five or six two seventy nine inch reach as a one forty five. That's kind of insane that he he has uh such height and such size for this division the last guy i can think of that had like such a huge size advantage or not even advantage but just seemed so big for his weight class was george roop but uh sean woodson has way more like uh, skills on the feet in my opinion um Shout out to George Roop with that uh, knockout of the Korean Zombie in WEC. If you guys haven't seen that shit, was it W? I'm pretty sure it was WEC. But either way, if you guys haven't seen that, make sure you guys check that shit out. Shout out to Tallman. But anyway, back to back to Sean Woodson here. Um, with his range, man, it's it's insane that he's able to land some of these shots and and get out of the way of most of the shots coming back at him. You know, he does keep his hands down a lot because uh, he's able to evade strictly just moving his head back and moving his torso back. Uh, so some guys are going to have issues trying to reach him. Um, Woodson's going to have to be careful here against Arosa. Arosa's a little bit of a lankier 145-er. Um, so he, you know, he might be able to catch Sean Woodson uh, in, a, in a spot where Woodson doesn't think that he can get caught. Um, 
you know, I love the the weird and awkward and orthodox style that he has with his hands, where he just changes a pace so quickly with like, you know, uh, an uppercut or a hook or whatever it is. He's able to just flow with his hands, and n- nobody can really do anything about it. Like Kabakniak had a lot of trouble trying to figure out what was coming at him because. You know, Woodson, again, Woodson was just able to move his arms around. And uh, when he wanted to, he could just put power behind one of those movements and it could really sting a guy. Um, his jab looked beautiful. Um, his knees up the middle just looked fucking phenomenal as well, too. Very, very impressed with Sean Woodson. But minus 510 is a little bit crazy, in my opinion. Obviously, don't play that guy straight. Uh, I think he, I, I'd say he's parlay worthy. But what I'm looking for here more so is the fight doesn't go to decision or even the under. Um, at minus 120, the fight doesn't go to decision. Um, that kind of leads me to believe that the over-under will probably be released at uh, two and a half. And if that's the case, we'll probably get a little bit of plus money on the under two and a half. Uh, and if that's the case, I got I got to take the shot there. Um, you know, both guys are primarily strikers. They have some power. And one of the things that I really noticed with Julian Rosa is that like he has this weird like hunched over style where he does like to throw winging shots. Nothing super technical. He has decent kicks. But the one thing when he is hunched over and throws some of these shots, he dips his head a lot. And in that case, I think that Sean Woodson is going to be able to bring up his, one of his knees. He's very sneaky when he when he you know throws his knees out there. And I could see one catching Julian Rosa flush on the chin that could possibly put him out and put him down to, to um, you know to end the fight. I love uh, what I've seen from Sean Woodson so far. I think the minus 510 is a little bit of a stretch considering that he's only 7-0. Let's not get too ahead of ourselves. Uh, again, I do love what I see from the kid, but we still need to see him um, you know, tested against some more people. Um, Kyle Bakaniak, decent fighter, but stylistically a pretty good matchup for Sean Woodson to go out there and have gotten the victory there. The the one, one issue that we uh, were trying to figure out without... Was whether Sean Woodson would be able to translate what he um, what he's shown on the regional scene as well as the contender series into the UFC against a guy like Kyle Bakniak that knew that he had to like you know pretty much bum rush Sean Sean Woodson get within the range and try to land some big bombs and Woodson did a great job of keeping him on the outside threatening with beautiful knees. Um, you know, even when Bakniak was trying to get the fight to the ground, we saw Woodson pretty much like a cat anytime, uh, you know, Bakniak tried to slam him or anything like that. He was right back on his knees and his hands. And next thing you know, he was back up on his feet. Very impressed with Woodson. Slow down with a minus 510. Uh, possible parlay piece there. But uh, yeah, Julian Rosa, it's, it's going to be a tough first fight back from in the UFC. I believe this is going to be his third stint in the UFC. Uh, he was coming off... Uh, three straight losses, Devontae Smith, Grant Dawson, and then Julio Arce. And then after that, he had one fight in Cade Sport uh, for a fight that was not able to find tape on, unfortunately, uh, against AJ Brown. He won that fight via choke uh, in the first round. And uh, now here he is stepping in on short notice for Sean Woodson, uh, or sorry, against Sean Woodson because Kyle Nelson was not able to get his visa to get over the border to get into the States to, to, to fight Sean and I thought that would have been a banger of a fight too but uh, I'll take Julian Rosa as well too he, he's a he's a fun fighter uh, and Woodson again it's it's going to be interesting to see how he continues to develop it to develop his game in the UFC and this is a great test for him for a, a very seasoned and veteran striker like Julian Rosa the guy is coming into his 32nd fight so this is a perfect matchup for Sean Woodson to really test his skills out and see if he's you know uh, this is this is not going to cement whether he's uh, a, a 
you know, a championship material or a contender material yet, but you got to bring guys along this nice and slowly. And I think this is a perfect showcase fight for Sean Woodson. Um, I'm expecting a knockout, which is why I would rather go with the under two and a half than actually play Sean Woodson. Uh, again, the fight doesn't go to decision. It's currently lined at minus 120, which again leads me to believe that it'll probably probably be over under two and a half, and I'll probably take the under two and a half uh, at slight plus money. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to go with Sean Woodson to win this fight by second round KO, probably even first round KO. Um, yeah, the guy's good, um, and I can't wait to see him perform. Maurice Green versus Gian Vellante. We got minus 230 for Maurice Green, plus 190 for Gian Vellante. And I absolutely understand this line. Uh, the under two and a half just for kicks is minus 160. Uh, but there's a good chance that this fight actually sees the judges' scorecards. So Maurice Green is normally the better fighter in terms of being the more active, uh, more agile, which is kind of weird to say for a guy as big as he is and probably not in the greatest shape either. Um, from what I remember when he was on the Ultimate Fighter as well too, he used to be one of those guys that would smoke too, which is kind of weird. And I mean cigarettes, not even the good stuff. But um, uh, he, he's carved himself out a decent uh, you know, spot in the heavyweight division. Uh, last time around, he obviously lost to uh, Alexio Linick in a fight where you know he played around on the ground a little bit more than he should have. Uh, his path to victory or best path to victory in that fight, even though you know his jiu-jitsu was decent, uh, it's not Alexio Linick level, um, his path to victory in that fight should have been just stick and move, stick and move, because he probably would have been able to uh, outstrike Alexio Linick on the feet without any issues. And we all know what happens. Alexio Linux still is able to pull off the armbar in that fight with 22 seconds left in that round. Um, in this fight against uh, Gian Vellante, though, I think he'll be able to... Like, Gian Vellante is not the greatest at one thing either. Uh, he doesn't have crazy knockout power either, so I think that Maurice Green will be fine on the feet. Uh, so I think that Green will probably just you know, dance circles around him, uh, won't really have too many issues in terms of, uh, you know, landing and getting out of the way. And if he really wanted to, I think he could really get this fight to the ground and really test out his jiu-jitsu. I don't think Gian Vellante has crazy good jiu-jitsu either. This is the first time we're going to see Vellante at heavyweight as well too. Uh, as we know, he, you know, he was scheduled to fight Ben Rothwell before he had to pull out of that fight. Um, and uh, that was the first time we were going to see him at heavyweight. Unfortunately, now he's coming in against Maurice Green. And I think that's a fight that it's um, a little worse for him in a sense. Like Ben Roth will obviously be able to uh, overpower him and, and make it a much more difficult night. Uh, but, um, you know, Maurice Green is going to be able to move a little bit better. I think he has the, the better jujitsu here as well, too, or at least the more offensive and the more willingness to use it. With Ben Rothwell, we know we don't see it as much, so it could be... Um it could be something that uh, uh, we'll see a little bit more from Maurice Green here. Um, so I'm expecting him to take this fight to the ground. I'm expecting Gian Vellante to be sucking wind, um, you know, midway through the second round, later in the second round, and we'll see Maurice Green start to take over even more and more at that point. But even before then, I think we'll see Maurice Green get him down and catch him in some sort of submission, or at least TKO him from the top. I'm not a Gian Vellante fan, as you guys can already tell. I just think he's not a good fighter. He has athletically, he has the skills, but uh, you know, actual, you know, uh, intangibles. He just doesn't have it. He's not even a coachable fighter either. Uh, I, I love, you know, sometimes just the only reason I watch his fights is just to see the his his coaches notably Keith Trimble I'm not sure if he's actually coaching him still but uh, I love seeing him just tear into Gian Vellante like just saying certain things and then Vellante just doesn't even hear him doesn't even bother listening to him and then goes out there and lays an egg so um Vellante is just not a good fighter um 
you know, trains with a decent camp, but still uh, it doesn't translate into the cage. So I'm expecting Maurice Green to absolutely go out there, uh, get top position and just make it a really difficult evening for Gian Vellante. So it's either a submission for or, or Maurice Green or a knockout for Maurice Green. Uh, I'm going to call it second round. Uh, and uh, yeah, hopefully that's the end of Gian Vellante. He, he's not UFC level. He doesn't deserve to be in the UFC so uh, this should be the end of him, in my opinion. So once again, I'm going to say uh, second round uh, TKO or submission for Maurice Green. Brendan Allen versus Cal Daukis. Uh We got minus 300 on Allen, plus 250 on Daukis. Let's start off with the UFC newcomer, Cal Daukis. He is a veteran of the UFC Dana White's uh, Contender Series back in 2019. Uh, he got a unanimous decision victory over Michael Lombardo. Uh, that name always trips me up because I have a good friend with the exact same name, so it always throws me off to, to say that name and think of a fighter. But um, that fight was uh, heavily dominated by a lot of the grappling on Kyle Daukis' part. Um, he had plenty of opportunities to finish that fight, just wasn't able to come up uh, with the submission there. Michael Lombardo was very, very resilient in terms of staying out of chokes and, and defending these uh, these submission attempts. Uh, and then after that, he comes out with two straight finishes uh, in his CFFC uh, just to defend his title over there. Um, and I think that was enough to, to for the UFC to really want to bring him back. Uh, I believe this is actually on short notice as well too. And not just, you know, covid reasoning short notice but uh brendan allen was actually supposed to fight ian heinish who was making a quick turnaround but he was unable to compete at this event in steps kyle daukis and uh, i think this is a pretty bad matchup for him here so he's mainly a jiu-jitsu player um he likes to implement his size and his strength against most of the guys that he goes up against because he's always the one with the slight uh, size advantage unfortunately for him here he's going to be going up with pretty much a carbon copy of himself but slightly bigger and definitely more experienced and way more talented in my opinion uh Delkis 9-0 Brendan Allen coming into this uh, fight 14-3 and and he's coming off a big win over top prospect Tom Breeze or I should say former top prospect Tom Breeze uh Sorry, Tom Breeze. And even before that, he was able to go out there and tap Kevin Holland, who, you know, in the past has shown great submission defense, especially in his fight against Gerald Mearshart. Uh, but the fight that really stands out for me for Brendan Allen was his five-round war against Anthony Hernandez, who probably is on the chopping block in the UFC now. But that was a great back-and-forth fight. A lot of reversals, um, plenty of action-packed striking exchanges. Uh, but... Uh, I just think overall here, Brendan Allen is just a better fighter. Again, kind of a carbon copy of Kaldaukis, but uh, I'd say stronger, way better striking, um, and will be able to ha uh, you know hang when it comes to the grappling department. Um, it's hard for me to see a way that Kaldaukis actually wins this fight. Um, I'm I'm surprised that it's uh, that. Uh, the line isn't a little bit wider on Brendan Allen here. Um, I, I'm doing my best not to pull the trigger here in case, like, I, again, I've always had bad luck when it comes to betting on fights that have UFC debutants in it. But here it just seems like a complete wash uh, in terms of Brendan Allen going out there and just uh, smashing this guy. I think he has a really good opportunity to do that. It's hard for me to see him get locked up in any one of those dart stroke attempts that Kyle Dawkins likes to throw out there. I think even if he gets to the ground, Allen will have the 
the superior top control and wouldn't really have to worry about you know getting choked out or anything like that uh he's gonna have the strength advantage too he's gonna have the uh the, the just the experience advantage as well as um you know the, the the striking advantage too is gonna come into a big part here because i think he has good enough takedown defense to make sure that this fight stays on the feet if that's where he wants it uh and then i believe he will be able to dish out enough damage on the feet to really uh you know wash out Kaldakis. um Allen's a great parlay piece in my opinion here. Uh, minus three hundred has enough value to a parlay, considering the, uh, the the discrepancy in terms of skill here. Um, you know what? He might even be straight worthy as well too. He, the minus three hundred, you know, I, I I do like him at these odds, um, considering the 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 lack of experience that Kyle has. Allen just does a lot of things better than him too, and he mixes up the MMA game a lot better as well. So uh, it's tough for me to see how Kyle is going to be able to pull off the victory here. Uh, he has a, a tough task to overcome, uh, and Allen's not a not prob probably not the best first UFC matchup for him as well. So uh, I'm going to go with Brendan Allen here, and I can absolutely see him actually finishing this fight as well too. Uh, the under one and a half is plus one ten. The over might be the safer play here, in my opinion. So uh, I still will lean more Brandon Allen here. I think he gets it done, done probably in the second or third round. But this should be a blowout for Brandon Allen outside of any Hail Mary submission that Kyle Duck is, is going to be able to throw up there. But I just don't see it happening. So I'm going to go go with Brandon Allen to win by third round TKO. Uh, the over one and a half at minus 130 isn't that bad of a price. Um, but yeah, Brandon Allen, third round TKO. Mike Perry versus Mickey Gall. We got minus 310 for Mike Perry, plus 255 for Mickey Gall. Uh, classic striker versus grappler uh, matchup right here. Uh, we'll start off with Mickey Gall, who's a little bit more green here. Six and two. Uh, the interesting thing that we'll need to look at here is actually the six foot two uh, inch height for Mickey Gall. And we got, I believe it's, yeah, 5'10 for Mike Perry, 74 inch reach for Mickey Gall, 71 inch reach for Mike Perry. So, Obviously, Mickey Gall is going to be the uh, bigger, slightly longer guy in there. Um, and I don't think it's going to be the the striking where this is actually going to be the advantage. I think it's going to be the grappling where uh, Mickey Gall is going to hope to have this fight. Last time around, we saw him against Salim Tahari uh, or Tori. Butchering that name, probably. But... Um, that was a fight where he took a grapple-heavy approach, even if it was just clinching up against a cage. Uh, he had Salim's back multiple times on the feet, but was never really able to capitalize on it in terms of actually getting him, uh, you, you know, to the mat and actually utilizing that back position. Um, the fact that he wasn't able to do that against a guy like Salim was very concerning, per se. Um, I was hoping that Mike Perry, uh, you know, might... My concern with Mike Perry is here. Uh, he has a ton of shit going on in his personal life. Uh, and obviously, uh, it's interesting that he even took this fight to begin with, considering that, you know, it doesn't look like he has a legit training camp where he's at right now. So he used to be at Fusion XL, I believe it was called, uh, in Orlando. Uh, and then after, uh, I guess, he separated from his girl, the Platinum Princess, he moved over to Lubbock, Texas. And I don't know what the fuck is over there. Uh, it doesn't seem like he has like the highest level of training over there or even coaches to begin with. Um, we just saw him release a couple of days ago a picture of, uh, you know, his, his girl's... Um, 
corner pass. So he was not talking shit when he's talking about uh, his girl's going to be in his corner. Uh, if she's going to be his only corner person, uh, that's even more skeptical. Uh, I wonder who's going to have to pick up off the street to actually, you know, be that uh, other cornerman. I- I'd be very, very surprised if he actually goes in there with just her as his cornerman. Uh, but that just raises a lot of questions, you know. Do you want to put minus 310 on a guy that, you know, one-dimensional striker and obviously his uh his advantage on the feet is much more massive than uh you know what uh mickey gall brings to the table here he hasn't really been the guy knocking people out as of late uh he's had a couple tough matchups he had uh jeff neal where he got knocked out last time at ufc 245 vicente luke very tough fight there uh pretty much broke the will of alex Oliveira, which is why he was able to get the victory there uh Tapped to Donald Cerrone, beat uh, Paul Felder, who had a broken arm, I believe, in that fight uh, via split decision, and then lost to Max Griffin and Santiago Ponzinibbio. Luckily for Mike Perry, pretty much his entire run in the UFC has been against other strikers, so we haven't really seen him super tested when it comes to the grappling room. You know, Alan Joban got him down uh, one time, or sorry, two times. you know, other other fighters haven't really threatened takedowns or or threatened them actually. You know, to to the extent that I believe Mickey Gall will. Um, you know, we saw Daniel Roberts a couple times shoot, uh, but that was more so in response to Mike Perry just throwing bombs at him. Uh, so Perry was obviously ready for any type of uh, um, uh, any type of takedown attempt that was coming his way. It was very easy. Uh, you know, Daniel Roberts was pretty much telegraphing it in the entire way. With Cowboy Cerrone, that was a weird one because it was Mike Perry that actually ended up going for the takedown and then found himself in uh, in an armbar. Um, I'm not saying that Mickey Gall is like Donald Cerrone level when it comes to jiu-jitsu, but it is his strength. And, uh, you know, that's where we really haven't seen Mike Perry uh, threatened like a lot. The little that we have seen from him on the ground, uh, it's okay. You know, it's not the, the craziest. Uh, he does just enough to, to defend himself. And I think a lot of it uh, is kind of due to his strength as well, too. He's able to power out, out of most of these situations. With Mickey Gall, I think it's going to take a little bit more than that. Um, We've seen, if you if you go through Mickey Gall's Instagram, you see him really working his strength and conditioning. He's trying to get thicker. He seems a little bit thicker too. Not thicker, but like at least stronger. Um, so that could obviously lead to us to believe that, you know, he knows that he's going to have to overcome a little bit of a strength thing here. Uh, but his size really helps him out. Um, my only concern with laying the minus three ton on uh, Mike Perry here, or even parlaying him, is if Mickey Gall somehow is the stronger guy here uh, has put on enough strength to to be able to overpower Mike Perry here. And then he would just kind of clinch fuck him against the cage. Maybe he doesn't get Mike Perry down, but it's enough to just continuously ride him like he did Salim, uh, you know, land pitter-patter shots from the back. Um, I'd like to see him a little bit more aggressive with like getting takedowns. Uh, one takedown that I'm kind of surprised that he wasn't able to pull off against Salim is when he did have his back, I'm not sure the technical term of it, but when he had his back... He was, you know, he could have kind of like kicked out the the front leg of Slim Tahari to kind of like get him off balance, and that probably would have helped him complete the takedown. But again, I'm not a wrestling coach or anything like that, so maybe there was something there that wasn't allowing him to do that. Um, regardless, I, it's it's tough for me to to fully um, trust Mike Perry at a minus three ten. Um, I lean the dog side here in terms of like if you're forcing yourself to bet on this. Otherwise, I'd just pass in total. Um, I'm not 100% satisfied with what I saw with Mickey Gall in his last fight. Uh, nothing super leads me to believe that he's actually going to be, be able to pull off that clinch game and, and tire Mike Perry out from the back. Um, 
so all in all, I think this fight is just pretty much a pass for me. Um, the only thing that would be intriguing, and I didn't actually get a chance to look at it, the over-under, yeah, it's at one and a half. See, that that's a little bit sketchy. Plus 105 for the under one and a half. That's that's not what I'm really looking for. If you're looking to, for the violence bet here, instead, uh, I'd say minus 265 for the fight doesn't go to decision is a little bit better of a price. Um, you know, either we see a Mike Perry knockout or we actually see Mickey Gall drag him to the ground and possibly pull off a submission. Uh, but otherwise, I'm just staying away from this fight. It's, it's very uh, tough to call to whether... You know, Mike Perry will be able to stifle any of the clinch game that Mickey Gall tries to bring here. Um, whether his level of training or lack thereof is going to be an issue here. I just, it's it's hard for me to trust a guy that we don't know his training situation. We don't know how he's handling it, who his training partners are. His fucking girlfriend's going to be his corner person. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not fully on the Mike Perry train for this fight. Mickey Gall is a very beatable opponent for him. He just needs to show up and, you know, Put, put the leather on him and i think he he could be successful with that so betting wise i would lean mickey gall uh, but in terms of actually picking a side here if you're not giving me any odds or if you could just give me minus 115 on each side uh you have to go with mike perry he he will probably have the better of the stand-up he probably will stifle the clinch game that mickey gall tries to bring to this uh but yeah i'll, I'll side with mike perry here but it's a pass for me all in all and it probably won't even be in any of my parlays either all right, time for the main event. We got Dustin Poirier versus Dan Hooker here. Uh, we got minus 230 on Dustin Poirier and plus 190 on uh, Dan Hooker. Uh, this is a very, very intriguing fight. Um, let's start off with the, ch- uh, well, the guy making it, trying to make a name for himself in the UFC, Mr. Dan Hooker. He's 20 and 8. He's coming off three straight victories. James Vick, beautiful finish there. Ally Quinta and then Paul Felder. And now here he is against Dustin Poirier. Um, going into this fight, man, I, 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 even going into this breakdown, I still don't know which side to choose. I'm not 100% sold on either side, which is why I will more than likely just sit back and, you know, watch this fight as a fan and not really have many money staked on it. But, uh, with that said, that's why you guys fucking come to me for advice and, and want to know what I think in terms of what's gonna, what's gonna transpire here. Let's start off with uh, Dan Hooker's last fight against Paul Felder. I scored that fight for Paul Felder. Um, you know, aesthetically, it looked like Dan Hooker should have won. But uh, in terms of damage actually done, it was actually, you know, Paul Felder, uh, you know, um, he, he looked like he took more damage. But in terms of actually scoring that fight, you, you got to go with Paul Felder. Um the difference between Paul Felder and Dustin Poirier here is that Paul Felder uses his kicks a little bit more. And I think that's that allowed him to open up the striking and allowed his hands to be a little bit more effective in that fight. Um, even though it is an L in the uh, in the column for uh, Paul Felder, I, I still feel like he won that fight. And he showed a lot of good things as to how you can beat Dan Hooker with a more diverse uh, striking game. That's the issue with Dustin Poirier here. He's more of a, a kick-heavy fighter. And I, I think that if he doesn't try to implement his his grappling into this fight, it's going to be a little bit tougher of a fight for him. Um, you know, Dan Hooker does have decent Brazilian jiu-jitsu as well too. But I think that Poirier has a slightly stronger uh, jiu-jitsu grappling and clinch game as well too. Uh, he will physically be the stronger guy. But Dan Hooker has a little bit of a size, height, and uh, reach advantage on him. Um Hooker doesn't do the greatest in terms of keeping fighters on the outside, um, but I think that also has to do with a lot. Uh, like again, in the Paul Felder fight, this is something that we saw is Felder uses kicks to allow him to close a distance a little bit better. Um, it, Dustin Poirier does cover distance quite well sometimes, but I think it's going to be difficult for him to to reach Dan Hooker. Um, Hooker's six foot 
75 and a half inch reach. The closest I think that Dustin Poirier has fought, at least in recent memory, is his fight against Max Holloway, who's a 5'11", um, you know, just a, an inch or two smaller than Dan Hooker, but has a much smaller reach as well, too. Uh, and Dustin Poirier did a good job in terms of really closing the distance and landing well at Max Holloway. I don't know what it was with Max in that fight, but it just seemed like he was off. Like, he he didn't seem to totally be there. He was getting hit a lot, which was really weird. Um, and Dan Hooker, he does get hit a little bit too. But again, it's it's going to come down to Dustin Poirier really closing the distance. And he's going to have to implement either a kicking game or a, a wrestling heavy game as well too to be able to really get to Dan Hooker. Hooker kicks very well. He has beautiful knees up the middle. Uh, his jab is decent well as well too. And the training camp that he's with as well is intriguing too. You know, working with those city kickboxing guys, Israel Adesanya, Eugene Berriman, and those guys, they, they usually come up with really, really good game plans to beat high-level fighters. Um, I think they could have figured out Dustin Poirier's game here. Um, you know, considering all this COVID stuff that's going on, Dan Hooker's making the trek out from New Zealand uh, to Vegas for this fight. Um you know that that's got to be taken into consideration here too but they're already a small training camp you know Dustin Poirier is used to rolling with the ATT guys that's a huge training camp and I'm not sure how many guys were actually able to go out there and help him prepare for this fight too and he's coming off a pretty I believe it was a hip injury if I'm not mistaken but uh, he had to take some time off after that Khabib loss which was back in September uh, in a fight that he pretty much got dominated in, and it's not a fight that you can really take too much from to, to put into this Dan Hooker fight completely a different stylistic fight for him um picking aside here minus 220 in my opinion is a little bit too steep on dustin Poirier. we don't know how he's going to look coming back from that surgery and coming back from that injury and he's going up against a guy that's very young and hungry and and ready for that top spot and uh you know seeing the success of israel adesanya i'm sure dan hooker is more than motivated to uh get get things going and really uh, stamp his name in that lightweight division um i see more tools for dan hooker here um, and, and that's tough for me to say because going into this fight, I was really thinking that I was going to side with Poirier and maybe even have a bet at him, on him at that minus 220, minus 240 range that I'd initially seen him at when I got into this fight. But uh, Poirier has some ridiculous heart. Like the fight that he had against Justin Gaethje, Gaethje tore up his legs and he was still able to finish Gaethje uh, in that fourth round. An insane fight that they had. Um, and I know that Gaethje wants that fight back too. So if Poirier is able to string together a win here, uh, maybe another one he could find himself fighting does, uh, just uh, Justin Gaethje one more time. But to be honest, if you're really putting a gun to my head, I got to side with, side with Dan Hooker here. And that kind of sucks for me to say because I'm a huge uh, Diamond fan. You know, I think that... Um, uh, he has a ton of skills, but stylistically, this is a very tough fight for him. Um, I don't think that uh, Dan Hooker should be this big of an underdog. Plus 200 is a little bit ridiculous, in my opinion. Um, but again, I, I I count out Dustin Poirier here and there. Like I bet him uh, against him with Anthony Pettis before we found out the fraud that Anthony Pettis was. Um, I believe I bet him uh, with Max Holloway as well too, and he showed up in that fight too. Uh, and I rate those guys a little bit higher than Dan Hooker here. But stylistically, those those are completely different fights. Dan Hooker is a completely different fighter too. He has great five round experience from his last time out as well. Um, you know, D Dustin Poirier has gone five rounds a couple times himself too. But getting that five round experience against Paul Felder, I think, is only going to do good things for Dan Hooker. It'll allow him to finally understand. You know, okay, this is what it feels like to be in a five round fight. This is how I should exert my energy throughout it and then again having a mastermind like Ma eugene Behrman behind him is really really good too so um 
Yeah, I, I got to side with Dan Hooker here, and I can't believe I'm actually saying that, but I'm going to pick Dan Hooker here. Um, I think he gets it done probably via decision or maybe even a late stoppage. Um, but yeah, I, I like Hooker here to just be a little bit more versatile on the feed. Uh, and if this fight does get hit the ground, I think he can hold his own. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it's going to come down to the kicking game as well for Dan Hooker. If he's able to implement that, he, he has beautiful calf kicks himself too. If he can get that going right off the bat, uh, he can have Dustin Poirier in a lot of trouble early and he could probably get him out there earlier too. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not picking a side on the over-under because I don't know which way it's going to go, uh, but I am leaning Dan Hooker here and I will pick him to win this fight by decision. Um, a part of me hopes I'm wrong though, but, but I'm going to go with Dan Hooker. Um, all right, that's UFC Vegas 4. This is the last event of, I believe, those five straight events that the UFC had since they came back from uh, the that hiatus that they had. Um, the next event that we have is UFC 251, which is just going to be an absolute banger. We got three title fights right off the top. Speaking of Max Holloway, he's defi- or trying to get his title back from Alexander Volkanovsky there. Uh, Kamar Usman against Gilbert Burns, great fight. And then there's, oh yeah, Peter Yan against uh, Jose Aldo for the vacant bantamweight strap, which should be a great, great fight as well too. There's a bunch of other great fights on that card. I can't wait to break it down for you guys. Um, we have two weeks until then. Uh, two weeks until that fight week. So if you're on my Patreon, you guys already know that you guys are going to get the early breakdowns. Uh, I'll be sure to have that up and running for you guys. Uh, I'm going to be getting into those matchups over the next couple of days as well too. So if you guys want to get these breakdowns nice and early, just hit up the Patreon. It's five bucks a month, easy peasy. You guys get all this content nice and early uh, and then a bunch of other perks that I'm going to have in the description below. So make sure you guys read that. And then lastly, before I get out of here, the Lock of the Night Challenge, the deadline is on Sunday, the day after this event, uh, 6 p.m. Eastern, last time taking applications at that point um hit me up on twitter at mmalot and if you guys are interested just a quick overview of what it is you pick one lock of the night play uh for every event for six months uh going up against whoever else is in the competition and then uh, after the last event in december the winner will be chosen in terms of uh you know well not chosen but whoever gains the most profit in that amount of time uh the top three is going to get paid out with whatever the pot ends up being Last time around, we had 25 people in the in the $25 game, and we had 15 people in the $100 game. So I'm hoping to get those numbers up this time around, so we have a bigger pot for whoever the uh, whoever comes out as the winner. I don't keep anything for myself, so the entire pot just gives is given right back to all the top three participants. Um, so if you're interested in that, you pick one lock of the night play for every single event. It could be a straight play, it could be a parlay, it could be an over or under, it could be a prop, it could be a parlay of props. I don't care as long as it's not more than one. Not more than one leg can be from one fight, if that makes sense. But either way, um, I'll put the lock of the night challenge description or link in the description below so you guys can see the full rules yourself. And again, if you're interested, just DM me on Twitter at MMALOTN. I'll be happy to sign you up and get you ready for that. But again, the deadline is 6 p.m. Eastern on Sunday, the day after the fights. So make sure you guys hit me up for that. All right. That's about it for this episode. I'll see you guys next week. uh, Or probably, actually, sorry, not next week. If you're on the Patreon, you guys will see me next week. But the next episode will come out the week of July 11th, which is the fight week for UFC 251. All right. Good luck this weekend. Let's make some money. uh, And I'll see you guys for the next episode.